1: Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast, and I'm here with uh, David Tainter. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, uh, good, good. We have something that's really something I've been obsessed with for almost my entire life. We're going to be talking about the music of Bob Dylan, and we're going to have guests who just created, who, who are the creators of a movie, a, a Dylan concert movie that is part of a new collection that was just released called Trouble No More, which is about Dylan's gospel, evangelical period, which is in the very late seventies and early eighties. So I, I'm, I, you know, I'm both excited and sort of odd and 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 all sorts of stuff to be talking about this because this is this is a Dylan's a big deal to me, but also this particular a period of music is 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 a big deal to me and and that sets me apart from a lot of Dylan listeners because a lot of people think that these three albums this kind of like hardcore evangelical period of his music is just crap or or like an embarrassment um and it that's certainly how how many people reacted at the time in 1979 where it was revealed that Dylan who you know all the Dylan stuff from the 60s and everything and and Bob Dylan had become an evangelical cr- Christian and not just something he was like doing privately on the side but had tossed out his entire songbook basically was writing these very intense sometimes confrontational songs based Based in in evangelical Christianity, and he had fallen in with this group of people. Uh, you kind of have to get your head into the '70s, where evangelical Christianity as a as a social and political force was really a different thing at the time than it is now. Almost, uh, really, almost exactly forty years later, but Dylan fell in with. This a uh, group out in california um it, you know very end of the world Bible prophecy, the kind of stuff that if if you're like like me, I grew up in Southern California, the kind of stuff that maybe if like you're driving out to the desert and you're going through Bakersfield in the middle of the night, you're gonna hear some like you know some guy on the radio talking about how like Russia is gonna start a war in the northern part of israel and that is how the bible you know prophesied that the world is going to end and that's going to happen next year and it's also that there's going to be a single currency in europe in the european community this is before the european union but but this is wild stuff and he falls in with this group um and it just shocks everybody I mean, it's really I, you know. In, in some ways, I think I I can see it a little differently because I am I'm actually going to turn 49 tomorrow. You can say happy birthday. Happy David. birthday. Thank you. Um, it, so when this stuff happened, I was about 10 years old, and I was actually kind of I was familiar with Dylan when I was 10. Kind of you know knew all knew about all this stuff happening as it happened, but I only really kind of got to really listen to this music when I was probably in my, you know, college, early 20s or whatever. And so I could sort of see the whole thing in context and uh, sort of see it as a phase in a way. Um, And that probably gives me some distance that kind of makes the whole thing more fascinating and, and attractive to me. But anyway, it is, it's really searing stuff. And I... I'm not a Christian. I'm I'm a Jew, not a terribly religious Jew, but religion has a place in my life. And so, th- for me, this this stuff isn't just like music. It it's I I, I find it a spiritually powerful stuff. Even though there is a lot about it that is. You know, you have to you have to have a sort of a suspension of, of 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 disbelief to kind of get your head in this kind of stuff because if you are not a if you're not an evangelical Christian, there's a lot of stuff you're just not going to believe. But there's also beyond just theology and stuff. This is this is when when these albums were coming out, Dylan was definitely in a place of the world is about to end, like not like. In some distant whatever future, but soon, like really soon, and you need to accept Jesus, or or you will be destroyed when 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 the world ends. So this is like you know this is pretty intense stuff, and 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 you know in the, in the stuff that that we write about at at TPM, you know when we hear people say stuff like that, we're kind of you know we've seen these people. Yeah, as, we have a word for it. Right? Yeah, we have, we've seen these people as kind of nuts. Um, But anyway, it's there is it is a very raw kind of music, and I think that because a lot of Dylan fans, and certainly the most, um, you know, prominent Dylan fans, music critics, and stuff like that, people who you know kind of write about being music music fans, because this stuff is so alien to them, and so in in many ways and. In some key ways, understandably offensive to them, that the music is sort of ignored, and um, it's really very powerful music, just in purely, you know, musical terms. But I, I think the songs, as expressions of Christian commitment, but sort of biblical religion, are also are also very powerful. So as you can see, I have quite a lot of stuff. To say about this, I've thought about it a lot. I've listened. I, I there was a period when I was in college where I listened to, uh, especially one of these albums, the middle of the three albums called Saved, which is which is sort of the more the most focused, concentrated one, where where it's kind of, you know, down to sort of like a, a, a hot white light, kind of concentrated together. I Listen to that thing like just constantly for for a you know for a long stretch of time, and there's just you know there's a lot of songs in there that that I still listen to. You know, David, I, I was just thinking how. And I think I'm right. You're from Minnesota, right? I am. Yeah, I was okay. just going to say. Yeah, as, a, yeah. as a native
2: Minnesota, yeah. I'm I'm interested in this because I don't know that I don't know that much about this period of his career. And you know, I've seen Dylan twice, um, once in St. Paul in Minnesota, and once in at a, a music festival in in Wisconsin, but. Um, this is totally obscure to me, so I'm I'm just excited to hear. Now, more. are
1: you from Minneapolis, like the Minneapolis area, the suburbs? Yeah, okay, and right, so I've hung right. out
2: on Fourth Street, you know, okay. which is near the University of Minnesota, and right. kind of know the geographic spots. Right. So, okay. So he he's from the Iron
1: Range, which I guess is sort right. of northern, up, yeah. You know, kind of like all the way, kind of what northwest or no? I'm sorry, northeast of the state. I think
2: it's it's sort of like north central, northwest okay. a little okay. bit. Yeah, because he cause this this
1: this. Um, this, you know, uh, uh, Dylan's family—they're—they're they're the, you know, the Jewish merchants in this in this town, which is a mining town, right? Basically, right, in the far north of Minnesota. And he—he, he, um, I think he's actually born in Duluth, but he grows up in this town, you know, little mining town called Hibbing. And he's there through high school, and then he just leaves. Um, but he—and there's always this kind of weird stuff with Dylan, where he's—he has this kind of constant reinvention thing, where he when he is a, uh, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, and then in through his 20s, he kind of creates this image of himself that he just, like, left and never looked back. Right. Which is not really true. It's funny, you know, in the, in, in the period when he's just starting out in New York City, he's, you know, he changes his name, and he's, you know, living this kind of vagabond life. But if you if you look closely in his biographies, he's, like, calling, you know, calls home once a week,
2: mm, mm-hmm. talking
1: to his mom and dad and yeah. stuff. And I think he – I don't know if he still does, but for – I assume he still does. He's got some big, like, estate. Mm. Like – and I don't think it's in many – I'm not sure it's right. – you're hibbing, but it's up sort of in Secluded, the – Secluded kind of, yeah. Yeah, kind of out in the country and whatever. So it is. Uh, well, tell me well, – we
2: don't even have to talk about Dylan. Tell me about growing up in Minnesota. What's what's the, What's the story with that? Yeah, well – it's a good place to grow up. I think um, you know I've grown to appreciate it the, the longer I've been away. But um, you know, people. I guess the the rumors about Minnesota nice are basically true. <laughs> yeah. I think people are proud of cultural icons who come from there. I think Prince obviously is sort of the the one that comes. And that's top what of people mind. think about now. Yeah. Right. And Prince is actually from my particular suburb of, okay. of the Twin Cities, Chanhassen. Shout out. Um, and Dylan as well. I think you know there are mural. There's a huge new mural that just went up in downtown Minneapolis, like three or four stories high, of of Dylan. Just this colorful portrait, and huh. you know it pops up on Instagram, Facebook. People are people are proud that there's a heritage of right, of that right, um, right, right. in the city, and and are loyal sort of listeners and fans. I think because of that.
1: Interesting, interesting. Well, you know, th- so what we're going to talk about today is so I've I've just kind of given you my whole disquisition about this this. About three four year period in 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 Dylan's life when he's in his late thirties and turning forty right around then, three albums. First one called uh, "Slow Train Coming," the second is called "Saved," and uh, the third is called "Shot of Love." They're each really v- very different albums. Each really good. Anyway, uh, since ever since <laughs> since there's a market of people like me who are obsessed with Dylan, and 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 Dylan has been recording for fifty years, for almost two decades now. Dylan's, you know, management, whatever, has been going back through his voluminous archives and putting out these, like, official bootleg editions Mm. of different periods in his career. And one of the... There's this weird thing with Dylan's music. A lot of Dylan's fans, and I think this is generally true, that often the best tracks are not the ones that end up on the album. So there's, you know, a lot of... People obsessed with some of them was just like people totally obsessed with Dylan one, right. of there were like ten versions of the same yep. song and stuff like that. But anyway, so they just came out with with the version about this period. And it's called Trouble No More. Uh it's out in like four or five different versions. There's one basically uh kind of two disc version. I um, mean people don't use compact discs anymore True, true per records, but you know, that length. And then there's another one's like you know, 10 discs or like 100 songs or something like that. And um, and so what is going to uh, debut on Cinemax in like a a, a week or so, I believe it's on the February 26th, you know, This is one of those things like there's a small chance I'm wrong on that. But Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm wrong, you just need to Google and look, you know, Google Cinemax Trouble No More and you'll be able to see it. In any case, that movie is also part of the big version of this soundtrack thing. So again, this is for Dylan fans, and in a lot of ways, like the most controversial part of his career. Again, a lot of Dylan fans just see it as just crap and an embarrassment. So revisiting this there's a lot going on for people who are sort of obsessed with this man's music and they have this as part of that collection they have this movie and it's a very weird it it's a very weird movie i just watched it watched it uh this morning and um it's weird it's very weird and <laughs> and here's 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 the here's i mean but it's good but it's it's a it's a it's a very Strange Conception, we're we're about to talk to the people who made it. So I'm curious to find out from them, like, you know, how did they get this idea? Basically what they did is they took concert footage that was filmed, I think, in 1979 and 1980. I think it's all from one tour, but we'll find out more about that. They took that, and you have each individual song, and then they cut away, and they've got this actor... Being a preacher, mm. and they have these little sermon segments, huh. and but these are not like it's not like they got footage of like some real preacher. They created these sermon segments, and they kind of go back and forth. And if you know, if I were in charge of putting together like a big Dylan, bo- you know, uh, box set. And I said, well, you know, we want to make a movie, too, to kind of put this together. But that wouldn't have occurred to me. Sure. Uh, but it kind of works. And, and um, you know, I, I, was, I was watching it this morning, and I had, you know, I hear these things presented to me by people who react very differently to hearing Christianity preached. And... Uh, some people who presented it to me, like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, born-again preacher guy comes on, and, it, and it's, it's, it's weird, and, and it's, it's so strange. And I, I – I, so when it was presented to me that way, I wasn't quite sure. Like, is it kind of like campy or whatever? And it's not. It's actually um, – it's very real. Um, and it's not—it's—it's it's not like it's a send-up or something. Or, like I think, if you are a believer, it would connect with you. It, yeah. You know, might or may not be your kind of of, of preaching or whatever. So it's a—it's a—it's a very interesting thing. We're gonna—we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about the movie, and we're also gonna talk about the process of how these compilations are put together. Obviously, as as I've mentioned to you. They the there's this whole now God I think they're like on the 18th edition now this long collection of these of these you know official bootleg editions that they put out of Dylan we have similar stuff with Johnny Cash and all all the greats you know they sure. put these out and the man who so what they do is they have someone who kind of go they just say like you know here's the whole archive and and. You've got a guy who just listens to everything mm-hmm. and comes up with you know these are the ones. This is out of these, you know. Y- you listen to like a whole tour and you know just thousands of thousands of songs probably, and you've got someone whose job it is who comes up with like this is the this is the one that you know these are the songs that you listen to, and the guy who did this on this edition of this Dylan thing, I was just uh, I I, w- I was just looking at his uh, you know kind of. Uh, cv you know what he's worked on before I mean, this guy is one of the you know top of his field guys who does this and he he's done he did lots of johnny cash's stuff mm. lots of the you know the equivalent johnny cash stuff and 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 sometimes these these compilations are not just you know stuff that's you know outtakes from studios sometimes it's all like published stuff but you're putting together the, yeah the best stuff so anyway, that is what we're going to talk about that and I'm I am always really interested especially about this topic to hear from people how what they make of this period. Like do you just kind of say like, you know, I'm just I'm I'm uh, this is just an artist. I don't, you know, kind of what 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 uh, Mozart or Johnny Cash was was thinking at the time. Doesn't I'm just talking about the music. But but in this case, the the belief and the message is is really overpowering. I don't think you can really kind of set it aside. You have to make some kind of judgment at some level about it. So I'm 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 fascinated to hear that. So uh, Jennifer LeBeau uh, produced, directed, created the movie. Greg Geller is the is the guy who went through the archives and put together this musical collection that is that that box set that I that I described for you before and Luke Sante uh is is the guy who I mean he's you know who he is from his writing about many subjects over the years but he wrote the sermons that I describe in in this in this movie so each of them play this you know play these different roles in the movie so we're going to talk to them right now Okay, so here's the thing about this interview. This is an amazing interview with these three uh, people who were involved in putting together this box set and this movie, but... There's a, there's a small caveat, and it's totally our fault. We had some audio problems when we were doing this interview. As you know, this is the this is actually a special edition of the, of the Josh Marshall podcast, but uh, we are coming up on our second episode, so we're just getting started. You can tell right now, like, the sound quality is amazing and all sorts of great stuff, but we had a bit of a snafu on this interview. So we have worked with the audio to try to make it as good as possible. It's totally audible. You can hear everything, but you're going to hear that the audio quality goes down a bit for this interview. So we just want to prep that. But trust me, the interview is worth it. And we also, trust me, now we know how to use our audio equipment so we won't have this problem again. Okay, so Jennifer, here's here's what I... I, I was just explaining that I just watched the movie for the first time uh, today. So it's very fresh for me. So if if I were... If I got the brief to... Put together a movie based on this period, based on concert footage. The interweaving of the, the the songs and the preaching was that that would not have been the first thing I would come up with. So so, give us a, what's the concept of this movie? How did how did how did this idea of creating this movie come about?
0: It all started really from an original point of, we knew we were going to do some kind of documentary around the New Bootleg uh, series. Um, And we, for a couple months, did I did start the research of putting together more straightforward doc interviews with people. But then very quickly, uh, we changed course. Um, In thinking about it more, we wanted the film itself to be showcasing the music in terms of uh, getting people to, on a broader scope, um, get into and appreciate what uh, Bob's space was at the time, mm-hmm. um, it really came through um, together with the Bob team that let's, let's create sermons around uh, specific topics. Right, okay. And um, Luke came into the picture really right away on that before we even delved further and deeper into actors, or how it could all work together.
1: So that, be, so, so interweaving with the sermons, kind of that was the, that came early, that kind of foundation The fact concept. that there
0: would be both,
1: okay. I would say, came yeah. early. How right. it was
0: all going to work, okay. <laughs> definitely, I would say, um, found itself after a little bit of time in the edit room.
1: Okay, okay.
0: And a lot of time, I would say, on my part with um, Luke's words, right. and with, the, with the script, if you will.
1: So, so Luke... When I and let me tell you, so I have had, and this is one of the thing for me. One of the things about this period in Dylan's work that, and and what I what what I have been discussing, sort of in the in the first part of this episode, is that this 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 music is not just really good music to me. I, I find the the message very powerful, mm-hmm. even though I am not a believer in that in in. I'm not a Christian, I'm not, you know, that is a very electric, raw, confrontational kind of Christianity. Still, I find it very powerful. A lot of people have always seen this period as like, or a lot of Dylan fans see this period as like crap and an embarrassment and just like, you know, something went wrong for a few years and then you're back to like infidels and stuff. So when I had this, these sermons described to me, Some people said, well, there's these kind of, they come in with this guy, like, you know, preaching, and it's weird and stuff. So I wasn't sure whether it would be, you know, kind of campy, sort of, but it's not at all.
3: So where do those sermons come from? Um, Well, I had pretty clear instructions from Bob. There were set topics, and it was clear that they were to be absolutely straight, convincing sermons. No surrealism. No, not too much on the fire and brimstone. Mm-hmm. He didn't, evidently, he didn't say that in so many words, but evidently he did not want them to resemble the sermons he delivered from the okay. during that tour. Because I was I was struck by, in, in
1: the, I know, and some of this is in the, you know, the music version of this collection, that, you know, he'll do the little mini sermons that sort of come in, you know, that lead in songs. And there's, I think at least there's none of that in the movie. I mean, it's 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 mm-hmm. just the mm-hmm. just the songs. Um, so I was sort of that st- struck me. But so uh, I know that I know that everything is very um, is very secret in the Dylan world, and, and many things are not discussed. But can you can you tell us anything about the the creative process and the direction? Because um, I I was I didn't realize that that. I mean, I didn't know where these sermons came mm-hmm. from, so I'm interested to hear that there was some general or maybe
3: even some very specific guidance about what they were supposed to be from. That's from pretty Dylan much itself. What I told you is pretty much the guidance of God. okay. And so here I am. Um, I was raised Catholic. I haven't been to church in fifty years, um, basically a non-believer. Um, but with a certain amount of respect for the tradition, and where was I going to find mo- sermons to model myself on? And I looked around my house, and I had a c- couple of collections of Puritan sermons from the 17th century, and they're all, you know, death and doom, forget it. Next reference I had, which turned out to be the right one, were the great African American recorded preachers of the 1920s and 30s. Uh, Reverend J. M. Gates, Reverend A. W. Nix, Reverend D. C. Rice, um, and they got to be pretty fire and brimstone sometimes, but there was also a lot of good sense. There was a lot of neighborliness. There was a lot of direct talk about real matters. Mm-hmm. And given that I had these topics between finding that voice, just taking the average of their their voices, and you know applying it to I, I um, you know I. Had a preacher in my mind, uh, and as I was writing, I was these words were issuing from his mouth, um, uh, and it was actually surprising that it didn't turn out to be an African American preacher in in the movie. Um, but it, it t- turned out not to make any difference. Michael Shannon's, of course, fabulous, um, but that that was my my process and my method and I think I had a two or three day turnaround so they were written very quickly. Okay so because well, that that's another thing that I that that <gasps> that came out
1: to me is that they are th- those sermons are very much focused on what you do in the world mm-hmm. and and poverty and wealth and hypocrisy but a very you know Rounded pastoral kind of kind of preaching, which in a lot of ways is not what's in the songs. I mean, the songs are 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 very much, you know, there's only one way, and 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 about broken people and uh, grace, unmerited grace. You know, the really sort of um, the the very basic stuff uh, is. Let, let me ask you this. Do you, when you, and, and this is for everybody, when you were putting this together and all the different roles that, that you had, did you need to make a, a judgment at some level about what this was about? Like what he, because I, the, the, I to me, it is, it is totally obvious, right? I mean, I may be wrong, but that's just the perspective that I bring to it, that he had some sort of, you know, shattering religious experience and this was this isn't some act right i mean this isn't or kind of like he wanted to you know Mm -hmm. get into god you know kind of get inside the head of gospel music i mean i think this is a hundred percent direct and genuine and impassioned and kind of Mm -hmm. on on fire um so that part of it at least is clear to me but i but other people i'm surprised that some people kind of think well this is you know Kind of a little play acting here, or something mm-hmm. that seems very hard to very hard to believe. But in a in a more general sense, at least for me, when when people who are not Bob Dylan say these kinds of things in the in the public square, I my feeling is this is not this isn't the way we talk in the public square. You could, you know this is mm-hmm. it's not really not my kind of talk. So for me, there's like a you no, there's a suspension of disbelief. I have to kind of let myself get into this space. Did you have to do that or kind of like... Uh,
0: I mean, I would say even when it is Bob Dylan, I think yeah. that was the challenge, the biggest oh, for challenge. for a lot of people, you you know, yeah. Well, that's, of, yeah. Of the film, and... Yeah. Um, One of the great things about obviously having the visual medium attached to it is the immediate seeing this guy Mm -hmm. in that zone on that stage. You pretty much, I feel like, can tell. You know, you really it resonates that this is Mm -hmm. real. This is something that this man is going through um, and experiencing. And I I actually, as a Jew with a father who's a rabbi, so I'm a daughter of clergy. I uh, it was also a very interesting perspective, kind of, to go into this because I could relate to both you uh-huh. know the performer as yeah. well as the preacher who quite frankly is a performer not as the actor but in terms of how he deals with this congregation yeah yeah um and each one of us i think had to find a you know the place in terms of each of our different roles of what you know the goal the end zone as you you know mm-hmm. were referencing mm-hmm. is to it but in terms of something you also said before i actually one of the great um processes for me was finding the flow, and mm-hmm. working the scripts, and each of the different topics together with the songs. And once that clicked, it really kind of came, you know, pretty pretty uh, easily, I would say, in terms of, it was clear to me, not just in terms of the historical background where Luke was coming from, but also from um, from the
1: material as well, from, from Bob. Luke, do you, what is, I'm curious, that, that same question. Do you need to make, do you need to make Judgments about about those questions, or sort of like, what is this stuff, or kind of you suspend disbelief,
3: or how do you confront it? Um, well, you know, I there's, I decided to uh, focus, not. Okay, I was sort of being, I was kind of being Bob. I was kind of being, you know, in terms of erecting this persona, kind of being Bob, kind of being this imaginary preacher of the 1920s or 30s and kind of being myself. And um, the, the the center of that Venn diagram is a basic, um, you know, nuts and bolts moralism um, because I may not be religious, but I'm a moral person. And um, so my through line was to write stuff that I actually believed, mm-hmm. you know. And if Bob didn't like it, he'd tell me to change it, but that's right. just the way I wrote it. Right. Right. Um you know, um the other thing we uh you know this just occurred to me and this is a new thought i mean i i may be completely full of it here, but I couldn't help but thinking as you were phrasing that question before, um what would Bob doing having <clears throat> this these kinds of thoughts in circa nineteen eighty and to my mind, it can't be entirely coincidental that it happened more or less the same time as punk this you know, the eschatological eschatological message of the sex pistols, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to destroy passers-by, that there is some kind of link there. Well, there is. I I was,
1: earlier in this episode, I I was describing that this isn't just, it's not just evangelical Christianity. It is a particular kind of very florid, almost, I mean, I'm I'm tempted to say conspiracy theory, but in, in... uh, you know, this is how Lindsay Sort of the the not just the world's going to end, but the things that are happening today are things that are are, are prophesied in the Bible. And and I, I was just you know kind of my experience of this music. I think is heavily. I, I, I'm I'm about to turn forty nine, so I was like ten when when this. And I already knew about Dylan because my my family, you know, whatever. I was kind of in that kind of grew up in that kind of thing, but I only really got to listen to this music when I was like closely, when I was like in college or my early 20s. And I think in some ways it's a little more accessible to me because I know it's a phase, right? I know this is kind of, this is like a three year thing that happened. Probably it allows me to kind of get some distance and kind of, you know, uh, whatever. But there is, it, it feels very sort of transitional late 70s in a way that I think this is what you're getting at that goes beyond whatever mm-hmm. the end of you know the dissolution of his marriage and his own chronological age at the time just that kind of I I I I think your your connection is is a, is a good one I I riff on that some more cuz there is this I don't know what to I don't know where to put that um you know when I was when I was When I was a kid, I grew up in Southern California, and if you would, I mentioned this earlier, this is the kind of stuff you listen, you know, you get up early Sunday mornings and watch TV, Mm -hmm. you know, you want the cartoons to come on, and there's some, like, you know, one of these preacher guys, and they've got these maps, and they're talking about, it's going to start with Russia, Mm -hmm. and there's a battle in Israel, but before that, they're going to have one currency in Europe, and it's just, like, crazy shit, right? Mm -hmm. So... What's that connection there? There is this kind
3: of destroy-everything, kind of the world-is-ending Yeah, apparently moment. he did, um, you know, he was reading um, Hal Lindsay, the late great planet Earth, and stuff like that. was pretty, you know, makes a hair on back your neck stand And yeah, he's up. still alive. <laughs> Lindsay's alive.
1: He's like 90. I looked at when I, when I was going back to this stuff, I looked it up. He's, and wow. he's still like, you know,
3: Yeah. out there. And, you know, I mean, there were different kinds of, uh, imminent apocalypses going on all over the place at that time. You know, that was going on over there. I was in downtown Manhattan, so we didn't have quite have that end of the world scenario. We had a different one. Yeah. But it was all end of the world scenarios anyway. Little did we know that the end of the world would come in the form of Ronald Reagan ascending to the throne, you know, but that was the feeling. There was mm-hmm. this, you know... An, Something old is dying and something new is about to be born and we don't know what it is. And it might just be like, you know, maybe it will be the rapture and there'll be clothes all over the street. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a feeling that, you know, Bob is, you know, good at tapping into the past and the, and the present and probably the future. And that was, you know, his way of connecting to a lot of the murmur that was present in the country at that time. That's, I, 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 I'm, (laughs) I'm supposed
1: to be talking, I just want to think about that for a second, but I'll, 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 I'll resist the urge. It's funny, because, you know, in the, I think Street Legal is the last album before uh, uh, Slow Train, and, and I can't remember, there's one song there, the big song on Street Legal, which is Escapes Me at the Moment. There's a feeling in that song, and it's kind of like florid with lots of instruments, and they're kind of, I don't know, I'm, I know how things sound to me. I don't know about like, you know, minor chords and uh, that, that's, I never, I never had that, that education, but it feels like the end of something. And it's powerful music, but it's like the end of, you feel like it's something is, 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 is getting to its conclusion. So, Greg, I want to bring you in on this. That, that, first of all, how, how, when they, when they Gave you the keys to the archive of this period of Dylan's music, like, how many songs are we talking about? Like, what? Like, how? What did you listen to? What is the total amount of stuff from which the collection on the box set comes?
4: Well, essentially, it was one hundred and twenty-nine, one hundred and twenty-nine concerts that I received uh, over the internet, uh, which the Dylan Archive. As on a cassette, for the most part,
1: and so they were recording basically every concert. Or yeah. Mo- mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right.
4: You know, soundboard recording right. generally of right. from the uh, final the eighty-one shows. There are a number of multi-track uh, recordings. Okay.
1: Okay. So how do you, you know, I, you have done many compilations of of the great artists' work. I mean, what I, I, w- I was looking at all of all of your work uh, this this morning and, and I, I mentioned before what, what I what I zoomed in on is there's a lot of Johnny Cash and that's kind of like all right that's besides Dylan that's like the next well, you know the next guy in the list so how do you how do you approach that whole thing how do you listen to that much stuff and then you whittle it down and say these are the 60 70 100 songs that are the
4: well you know it depends on the project certainly <clears throat> uh, there are some projects that are way more focused in a sense, than this Dylan project uh, was. Mm-hmm. But in this case, you know, there's this vast amount of music uh, almost entirely unreleased. Um, and basically what you do is uh, you sit down and you listen to it all. Um, take notes, requires a lot of patience. You have to really like to listen to music. Um, for me, those 129 concerts took about four months to listen to. Um, basically generally two a day one in the morning one in the afternoon Um, and you identify the best performances see it's interesting I mean listening to the conversation exactly what was being said was not particularly pertinent Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for me you know I mean I was listening for Bob's performance Mm -hmm. uh, the playing of of, you know the band (laughs) and audio quality those were the, right. the qualities that were most important for me. Only incidentally was uh, the message in the music right, and, right. of importance.
1: Now, did you, you, you mentioned uh, every project is, 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 is different, of course. Did you, what was the brief? Or, or how much was there a brief when, when you were brought into the project? Like, what are they looking for?
4: The idea was to identify the best version of each song that had been performed during the course of those three years. Okay.
1: So, basically, just at, at some, to whatever extent one can say, like the best stuff out of all that. It's basically that, just the, the best yeah, performances.
4: Some, sometimes, um, you know, there were, after listening to everything, you would arrive at maybe two or three contenders for best song. And sometimes, some, and sometimes those are, there, there are multiple yeah, tracks of the same sure. song in the, in sure. the collection. I mean, you know, because as we all, no, I mean, Bob evolves. I mean, the music changes constantly. And so, for instance, with a song like Solid Rock, on the first CD of the set, we have a version that is largely consistent with the LP version. Or actually, the LP version is largely consistent with the live version. Right, right. Um, but by the second disc, we have a drastically rearranged version, slower. Sort of slinkier, right. slide guitar, um, bluesy. So you know you're always on the lookout for for something that's um, revelatory in that way. You know, right. That, that really demonstrates uh, some of the changes the music was going through during the during the time.
1: One of the things people talk about about the, these three albums and 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 these concerts is he just has a very tight backing band. But for people who who maybe just listen to it, a, a lot of the people who were in that. In that band are, are like legendary musicians in their in their own right, and we're and we're well on the way. At least at the time, oh, sure. kind of that Muscle Shoals yeah. sort of southern. Can you kind of give us a sense of who the who the personnel is? Sure. Well, on lead
4: guitar um, in the beginning through most of this period was uh, Fred Tackett, who was uh, a guitarist in little feet. Uh, the keyboards were uh, played by Spooner Alden, who was one of the great southern soul musicians. Of uh, really the '60s, great songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, the drummer was Jim Keltner, who to this day is, uh, you know, one of if not the session drummers in the world. Uh, the bass player was um, uh, Tim Drummond, who had played with James Brown, great bass player. Um, who had as well backup singers, of course. There was a revolving Cast of gospel singers right. uh, with Bob during uh, those years, but uh, they were all great. Uh, from well, principally, I mean, Clyde e. King yeah. kind of stands out above all the rest, but and that's saying a lot because the others were so good.
1: Right, right. Um, and there's a, there's a duet they do in the in the, at the at the end of mm-hmm. can, can Jennifer. You know, tell us about now that that must be from this. That's a that's a studio take. I mean, it's a little, it's zoomed in, so it's a little unclear for at first. That but.
0: was, um, we believe, rehearsals okay. for the, the tour um, uh, in 81.
1: Okay. okay.
0: And um, we were able to feature and find um, various mm-hmm. sessions of songs that, you know, mostly they're playing around with and work right. for the most part uh, on a lot of the tour. Right. But that's usually the goal that you find in rehearsals and jamming time. Right, right. Uh, this was a performance of Abraham Martin and John, and um, in it is it's a very intimate performance. Bob playing at the piano, Gladys sitting next to him, one camera, and they just belt, and it's uh, to hear they're harmonizing together is stunning.
1: Now, what was h- how much of these tours was filmed?
0: Just the. Uh, these uh, concerts from uh, Buffalo, and, uh, excuse me, the concerts from Toronto. Okay. And then there was this additional material from Buffalo that nobody knew existed. Okay. Or somebody, obviously, somebody knew that they existed. <laughs> excuse right, me, right. that was stupid. <laughs> um, but the material was, was found, and uh, there were additional um, cameras and additional pickups that were done um, about a month later on the last uh, couple months of the tour
1: okay but so so all of the all of the the you know kind of produced footage is from two or three concerts it's not is that correct basically and right? uh,
0: where we got that rehearsal footage from that opens um, the film and ends the film right. was just with from one session um, uh, It looks like it could have been a day or two days got um, it. in los
1: angeles got it what was was why why is there none of Dylan speaking in the in the movie? and I don't mean I don't mean like interview footage. Mm-hmm. I mean because my sense is is that and you, you you hear some of it in the in the you know the audio only part of this of, of, of this collection where he's kind of preaching or or
0: and you can yeah. see the moments you know on YouTube because mm-hmm. there were some um, bootleg copies right. around of these Toronto shows. There was a decision that once we um, wrote, uh, we had that the sermons were written um, by Luke, that that was going to be the narrative other than letting Bob speak through his music and his lyrics.
1: Right, right. And
0: um, I was 150% full in there. I felt like the other material is out there for people who want to hear it. It's even transcribed online,
1: everybody. I don't think it's a bad decision. I was just curious because it... It, it jumped out at me mm-hmm, that, of that I knew that was there and there seems like it's a very conscious decision just to have the music, you know, just just the, the, the that alone. Yeah,
0: very much, and, and I loved the idea because of um, the... Um, when people hear Bob speak, and it's not within his songs, right? Every word is taken to such an nth degree, right? And right, particularly right. about um, this gospel period, it seemed to me the truest way to get across ideas that he didn't already address in his lyrics, right? Because we know he over, you know, doesn't overthink, but you know, redoes right. that and perfects every word, right, right along right. the way. He's done that job, I'm not, you know, and. Um, and talking to a concert in a live experience is a very different dynamic than um, always using it for a large for a larger thought process and, and uh, our archival history. Yeah, you know, and I, I think too,
1: and this is, I mean, th- th- this comes out in 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 different ways over the course of his career. There's a a sort of a mixture of shyness and petulance and confrontation that he gets into in his concerts, especially here when, when, um, when in a lot of cases he's facing sort of like a hostile crowd at some level, that it's, 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 um, it's raw and it's not always totally pretty, you know, um, and it's confrontational. He's, you know, he, he, he kind of senses the resistance and, you know, all this kind of, all this, all this sort of stuff. But let me ask you over having, now, is it, you had audio of well how many tours were there in this period gee that's a good
4: question
1: um or I guess a different way to put it is is did you listen to material from 79 to 81 oh absolutely
4: okay oh sure so and yeah, you know I, know I I stumbled over your question because I think maybe there were three main tours but they were you know there were there were rest periods during the course of those tours, so. Right. So, okay, so this is very interesting
1: to me because I have my own thoughts or feelings or interpretations based on on the progression of the albums. And they have very different tenors, to each one, each each of those three albums has a very different tenor to it. And um, it's always, one of the reasons that I was so interested in hearing this uh, this, this, the, the, these concerts is that the first album is very heavily produced, and I've always felt that it's a little strange because it's very raw music, and you hear more of that in the second album. And it's, it's, it, so the album's kind of overproduced for me, right? And you hear much more the rawness in the, in, in this, in, in the concert. I keep wanting to say footage. It's not footage. Um, what do you hear of the progression of those three years over the course of that concert you know, concert audio? Well,
4: you're certainly right that Slow Train Coming was a very produced album, much more so than any other album Bob had done to that time, mm-hmm. certainly, and perhaps since that time. Um, but the thing to keep in mind, I think, is that by the time he went out on tour, uh, he also had all the songs that became the Saved album. Right, um, right. They hadn't been recorded yet, but he was performing them on on the, that first tour. So by the time they went into uh, record Saved, um, you know they had the songs pretty well down pat, and they just went into the studio and did it really quickly, just banged it down. That's what
1: it's. That's what the album yeah, sounds like. What, it's absolutely. just very concentrated and. Yeah. Much more stark than the, mm-hmm. like the, the 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 production quality in Slow Train is too is a little too warm and fuzzy for the music. Yeah, it's always I, been my sense.
4: Maybe so, and I but I would say that maybe the production quality of Saved is a little bit too much on the other side. Yeah, no, that that's definitely yeah. that's definitely I mean, possible. That, that delicate balance that yeah. has to be achieved in the studio of creating the sort of the impression that it's alive while still you know in the studio right the right time. and and
1: i'm curious your sense of this because my again i'm just a listener i don't know all that world but the i love uh shot of love but as a as a produced album it's always sounded to me like a mess like it it's it's all over the place and and i can even with my ear, I can tell that the way that some of the songs are put together, I don't mean arranged, but the way they're recorded, it sounds to me like kind of like just whipped it up and, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of time.
4: I think, uh, you know, it followed uh, the pattern of many of Bob's albums, actually, uh, where, you know, they're kind of uh, written and recorded on the spot. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. Mean, there's that great Sense of spontaneity, but uh, you know, you might want to have a little bit more uh, rehearsal time and and production.
1: Yeah, no, that I mean, to me, that doesn't with that album specifically. I I would not want it to be other any other way. Like it's it's a it's it works for me totally as an album. But again, when I listen to it, it's just it's just very apparent. It's kind of I think you're right, thrown together sort of. (laughs) But can you, in listening to those? in listening to those concerts, from, from knowing the albums very well, you get a sense, or I get a sense, that there is a, a softening of the intensity of his, maybe not his conviction, but his need to demand agreement from everybody, to, to preach. Do you, does that come through as you as
4: the arc of the concerts? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, by the time of the third tour, uh, you know, he's weaving older material back into the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he seems to be moving past his uh, fervent gospel right. stage. Now, is it having having
1: listened to the entire audio? Is does that come through in the sort of the know the verbal interlinear notes of like the of the talking and stuff? I think so.
4: Yeah, I would say so. Although I have okay. to I have to say that I didn't focus very much right. on the spoken interludes. I mean right. some of them are pretty great. A lot of them are less interesting. Uh, and I think they were left off for a good reason. I mean it's not you know we really decided to focus on the music. Um, Turned it into a you know a pretty solid listening experience. Right, right, Something that you know you can listen to like a record uh, over and over and over again, as opposed to uh, wading through the spoken bits.
0: In terms of getting into the 1981 material as well, which Greg was just speaking of, um, I was mistaken in that he did have um, some photographers and you know friends who were also filmmakers with him on the box that There is a performance of "Shot of Love." Right, and everything from the photos to this footage um a little bit of footage that exists it feels to me like a night and day from 1980 um it's interesting that um that Luke brought up punk because he has um an additional guitarist on the tour who like literally looks like he stepped out of CVs um <laughs> and uh you know how how what happened in that in that period of time, be it six or eight months, mm-hmm. in terms of dress and the co- and the stage costumes, everything's entirely different. Which it also was from the first um, period uh, of the touring as well. There was the number of shows done in San Francisco first, and then he went out. That it really was a, a, an evolution.
1: Tell us about there, there's and I wasn't sure it, it, that kind of commercial for the tour that's either yeah. starts the movie or is at the very beginning. Yes. That's a real, com- like, that that's not a, a pastiche. That was put- a real commercial okay.
0: done by CBS, yes.
1: Now, I found that fascinating, because it's basically, they kind of put it out there, you know, some people say he's gone nuts, some people say it's good. You, you show up and you figure it out, basically. Exactly. I, I found, I mean, I th- that was, um. <laughs> I, I didn't. Well, I guess it wasn't his self-awareness. It was. It was. Well, CBS's I do believe. Yeah. I know.
0: I actually do believe that there was some involvement from um, Bob in terms of how he wanted to, right, You know, right. address the fans to to challenge them yeah.
4: to come. I mean, I worked at Columbia Records at the time. Okay. There's the no way that happened without Bob's. Role. <laughs> right. Right. Right.
1: Right. Right. No, I, I that that makes that makes that makes. I was just very because that is actually that the audio of that is part of the, you know. The, the box set you know the non movie part so that's in there and or I'm not sure the entire part but I mean I I hear, I hear that when it when it's absolutely and,
4: it's on disc four
1: okay yeah well there <laughs> there you go there you go I uh, okay no that's, that's that's
0: that's I mean that yeah. actually really became a linchpin in terms of the whole structure of the film and how to address um, how how to how to to find find the voice for the film for me because once once you set up bob's acknowledgement of the challenge that he was giving his mm-hmm. fans yeah. and to kind of make it a back and forth when you're making you know showing the visuals also of what that concert film is like you know, there aren't you know yeah ha- we had to like pull back you know in terms of our final mix like no we're not adding huge crowds here there was no huge crowd here right right right
1: right um i was actually struck by in 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 the in in the footage that to the extent that we're hearing the audience—it's very positive, you know. When he, yes. when he hits the key riffs, they recognize the song. You get you know uh, uh, cheering and everything. And in the what I assume are just you know amateur footage of those concerts that I've seen over the years, there certainly seems like I, there's one that I've seen. I saw years ago where it's 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 one of the songs where I think it's just him on the piano, maybe without any other accompaniment. And uh, you know, it's very raw and the audience response is not positive at all. Meaning I mean,
0: you heard heckling back?
1: Yeah well I, you know I it's sort of a memory fragment but I'm not sure heckling but kind of like m- sometimes the silence kind of you impute like a, a kind of a what the fuck to th- so yeah. people don't know sure, what to I make mean- of it.
0: Uh, when he returns is one of those songs when he first him on yeah, the piano, yeah, and that yeah. to me is, I think, my favorite performance. And um, within the show, is just so powerful because of that. However, from a lyrical perspective, it's like everything I don't believe. So it's no, like really putting, you know, wrapping your head around. Yeah, like? yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow.
1: No, it's that. That is always the. Th- there's certainly a process for me of you need to put yourself in a different space to, I mean, I can't, it's, it's, I can't just listen to the, you know, I, I I have to reconcile the two at some level to, (laughs) um, at least if it's, if, if it's music that I, that I, that I care a lot about. So, um, that's interesting. So tell us, to the extent, I know it wasn't what you were looking for. What about the audience response and you know, the, the audience presence in the, in that audio?
4: Well, uh, you know, keep in mind that Slow Train Coming was Bob's most commercially successful album to that time,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
4: perhaps to this day. Um, so the, the audience response, you know, I, I thought was pretty positive, okay. generally. Occasional, you know, I mean, it was controversial. There were people who were upset, certainly. But on balance, I would say it was... Positive response. Okay,
1: that's interesting. I mean, one thing that and 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 look, I, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. And and some of this is is putting people back into the cultural moment of the mid and late seventies that now we treat it as just obvious that that evangelical, you know, kind of uh, that kind of evangelical Christianity is inherently. Conservative and politically conservative, it is a it is a social and political faction in in the American body politic. But in the mid 70s, there was this kind of some interweaving of kind of post 60s hippiedom with born again Christianity, and those things were not, you know, were, were it wasn't as tidy as it seems now about where everybody's <laughs> sort of cultural and and political
3: placing is. What, is that, do I have that right? Um, You know, there were Jesus hippies, etc. In fact, when, um, when the film premiered at Lincoln Center as part of the New York Film Festival in the Q&A afterwards, there was a guy in the audience who was by gum, absolutely genuine, uh, 100 percent Jesus hippie from 1974. Um, who'd aged a few years, but he was full of belief, and he was upset by the comments, and upset by doubt and stuff like that. He was still there, you know. So there, yeah, there were all these forms of thought swirling around, um, and um, and the, the wave of reaction was coming, you know, but it was still kind of hadn't quite hit yet. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously you had, I'm I'm talking from the perspective of the East Coast elite here, right? (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, what was going on in the center of the country was a whole different story. And when I speak to friends who grew up in these places then, you know, it's clear that, no, actually, you know, the the literal interpretations of the Bible and homeschooling and uh, dress codes and all kinds of stuff like this was already fully in place. It happened right alongside um, the hippie movement, you know, in the 60s, and they kind of grew together and interspersed and interlaced, um, and then the the hippie thing kind of fell off after a while in favor of pure fear. Um, But, yes, it was very complicated terrain, and, um, and to try to make sense of it in terms of today's, Highly polarized size doesn't entirely necessarily work. Right. It's, it, it's definitely very different. And that was the main thing I kind
1: of wanted to give people a sense of is, mm. that, is that as a social and political force, evangelical Christianity, this kind of evangelical Christianity, was very different, had a very different place and a very less defined place I in, mean, than it did. Right. Remember,
4: the, I mean, Jimmy Carter was our president, but yeah, Slow no train to Come China. in was really Right, right,
1: right, right. Oh, and that's. And it, you know, m- moving to the political side, this has always been sort of a fascinating thing that, that Jimmy Carter, who, who, you know, later became sort of like the, you know, kind of wrongly, kind of like the iconically late 70s liberal president, was mm-hmm. to a great extent was elected on the the political power of the rising evangelical movement, which again now seems totally
3: Crazy, or you know, identify with what. the South, of course.
1: Yeah, yeah, know? no, totally, totally, totally. Was there something else you were going to say? No, okay. Um, I didn't want to forget. I, I have, I, I, mm-hmm. I have to. Mm-hmm. I, I, before we, before we sign off, I have to ask you. What about Johnny Cash? You, you, you did a lot of compilation work, and very, so I want to hear about him. Johnny Cash is a is a big deal. I know to a lot of people, big deal to me.
4: Well, well for me, story. It, you know, I mean. I, I have phases in my career as well. Johnny Cash, I've spent a great deal of uh, the years, uh, say 2005 to 2015 or so, working on Johnny Cash. But, you know, in the 80s it was Elvis Presley, and in the 90s it was Frank Sinatra. Um, you know, i uh, kind of the jack of all trades, I guess. Uh, but these are all artists that I, you know, love from my earliest days.
1: No, I, I must say, that I, 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 maybe we can do some more shows because I there's a whole there's a whole different conversations that I I I'd, I'd love to hear about on, on, um, on each of those. Jennifer, the, the the this is is going to premiere. It's part of the the big version of the box set, but it's yeah. going to premiere on Cinemax. I think on the twenty sixth.
0: That's correct. Of February. At 10 PM.
1: Right. So. Anything else we need to know to watch for? Is one that... of the
0: things, one of my favorite anecdotes about this whole period, um, uh, and I'm guessing um, this might have affected Greg as well in terms of the time of it, is we really started talking about this project a year before. We actually then started production on the on the project, but not just in terms of research, because at one point we were going to start it and get it done earlier. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it was just, you know, a time and logistic situation and how everything ended up working out. Um, from my very lucky experiences of having to um, have done other Dylan projects over the years, I can say there is always some kind of mystical chemistry of timing when all of a sudden that the fact that this project and all the topics that we spoke about today right. happened after the Trump presidency. I'm not putting any of this in any of the Bob row, but right. this is coming from any of that. <laughs> To me, was one of the most important things. Things that that on the page didn't jump out, but that Michael brought to light with his performance of mm-hmm, it. To me, mm-hmm.
2: in
0: t- and in terms of how we were able to interweave them with the lyrics, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I find the 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 issue of respect um, first and foremost in in Luke's sermons um, for all, all for all kind, and we've all been there. Mm-hmm, and you know, mm-hmm. you are just like me. And uh, that, to me, is one of the most beautiful parts about how the timing and how all the pieces falling into place of this came together. I, felt, I feel like this is an important time for this to be listened to, whether um, you're a believer or not. What is being said? I have a little, a little different take on a lot of, um, on some of the lyrics in, in certain songs, that within Bob's fire and brimstone, mm-hmm. the hypocrisy leads off. <laughs> oh I think that you know? I think
1: that's no that, that is unquestionably true and you're in the and and that is a hundred percent right that that, that is um, oh people should just listen and make yes. and, but I, I completely uh, agree with that I, it's more it's more that when I always when when I'm describing this music to people who are not familiar with it I think that, some people kind of assume that it'll be kind of you know sermon on the mounty kind of stuff and you know do unto others and and so it's just a kind of and it's that's there but but there's, a, there's, there's 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 it's well but there's it's, the a, anger of what's yes, happening in yes, the world yes. the
0: anger in him um, in this music I actually almost feel comes through in such a different way than the answer is blowing in the wind. I mean, let's call it a spade, as it is, it is the era of punk coming through mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. different way of getting out this aggression while the Sandinistas and Iran is g- going crazy and we're mm-hmm. about to elect a, you know, uh, an actor and what is going on. I think that obviously there's tumultuous times throughout all of history, but the-, um, the It's the, a transitional the, period. The lining yeah. up. Uh, yeah where we we are right now in the world i thought it right. was very interesting
1: right. well look it's uh, uh, as i said i i watched the the movie for the first time this morning and i i i loved it and and i uh, the the interweaving of the sermons uh it, it, it clicked for me that in a way that I was not sure that it would, frankly. I mean, it's a, mm-hmm. it's an, it's a kind of an out-there concept. Um, so it's great, and I recommend everybody uh, tune in on Cinemax to watch it, and also get the box set. It's really, and, and I really I really recommend, because I think this is, the thing about Dylan is, is most of the periods have been listened to a lot. And this is a period that in a lot of ways is kind of un, untrodden ground for a lot of people. So I, I really recommend it. And thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Look for us next week, next Tuesday for episode two of the Josh Marshall podcast.